0: Well, it's hard to believe that we're already here on the fourth Sunday of Advent, the day when we light the candle of love. We're going to wrap up our series today called We Have Good News. And just to recap real quickly, on the first Sunday of Advent, we talked about how we have to hear the good news, we have to receive. The gospel, the angels proclaimed glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill to men. I bring you tidings of great joy. I bring you good news is what they told the shepherds. We have to receive that gospel in our core. We have to let it take root in our souls and then bear fruit. And then the second Sunday of Advent, uh, our choir and musicians reminded us that that good news is not ours to hoard for ourselves, but we have to go Tell it on the mountain, over the hills, and everywhere. I did last week, we talked about how even though we have good news, we still have to wait, that we live in this strange tension of the now but not yet, where the first advent has come, and that changed everything. Jesus' death and resurrection inaugurated a whole new era of time, but... We still have pandemics and we still have uh, issues in this world of the consequences of sin and death. So we long for that second advent when Christ will come again to finish making all things new once and for all. In the meantime, we wait. We wait with hope. That's the difference. We wait with sure and certain hope. So now today on the day where we do light the advent candle of love, we're going to finish this series by talking about the greatest love that this world has ever seen. The love with which God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know, once we heard the good news of the gospel, once we've told it to others, and once we've learned how to wait for the consummation of that good news, now we have to learn to live by the good news. How then shall we live? We live by the gospel. Well, our text for today is a beautiful gospel text, one of the most powerful verses, two verses, three verses in the New Testament. Uh, We're going to look at Romans chapter one, verses 15 through 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. So I'm eager, the Apostle Paul writes, to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Blessed be the the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, perhaps your ninth grade year in high school uh, was awkward. Mine was painfully awkward. Uh, I had just moved, my parents moved off of Liberty Pike in in Franklin, Tennessee, and my sister uh, was able to go to Franklin High even though we were zoned for the new high school centennial But my sister got to grandfather into Franklin, so as her little sibling, I got to go to Franklin High as well, which meant I didn't know anybody except my sister's friends who were seniors and they just liked to pick on me. I was almost six feet tall and maybe 115 pounds of just lankiness. And uh, of course, my eighth grade year, right before I went into the summer, I got braces and I had a big mouth. Full of metal, and I learned to smile with my mouth closed, not because it was some kind of cool European soft smile, but because I was ashamed of my metal mouth. I didn't want people to see all my braces that were filling uh, my mouth. What are you ashamed of today? You know, I'm learning that here in the U.S., we really don't have much of a shame culture. It takes a lot to shame an American, but I'm learning from my African brothers and sisters and especially Asian uh, brothers and sisters that they have these deep embedded cultures of shame, that you have to uh, bring honor to the family and and to the family's name, and and you you dare not do anything that would bring shame. Paul talks here about being ashamed of the gospel. What does that mean? What does that look like uh, for us? You know, here in the Bible Belt, it's it's really not very controversial to attend church on Sunday, to be a member of a church, to attend a, a Sunday school class or, or something like that, a Bible study, especially if it's at a well-established, well-respected Baptist church like Woodmont Baptist, of course. But increasingly here, even in Nashville, claiming to be a, a believer in the resurrected Son of God and, and have this Holy Spirit living in us and to have faith in him for our salvation eternally is is going to increasingly become a strange idea and, and make us more of an outsider to the wider society. People will see that kind of belief as strange and, and sometimes backwards and and even uh, narrow-minded and and singular. You know, Rome was the proudest city on the planet at the time that Paul is writing this letter. You know, I have a friend who's from Yazoo City, Mississippi, and she went to grad school at Princeton in New Jersey, and Princeton's only uh, an hour and 20 minutes by train or by car from New York City. From Yazoo City to New York City. And my friend, uh, while she was in grad school, would would make several trips up to New York, and she fell in love with the city, and she told me that someone told her, there's two kinds of people in the world, those that live in New York City and those who are just kidding themselves. (laughs) I think that's how she feels about the city now, and, and I love it too. It is a great city, but Rome was that kind of place. Romans thought everyone who didn't live in Rome was just kidding themselves, that only Romans really mattered to society. It was the place to be in the first century. You know, Rome had basically conquered all of the known world at that time during this this Pax Romana, and and they included that little province uh, down in the, the, the ancient Near East called Judea where a tiny group of religious people called Jews lived, and and Rome had conquered the Jews. So how would a message of a Jewish carpenter who had been killed in the most embarrassing, humiliating way possible, being nailed to a cross by the Roman soldiers, and then raised to life again, how would that message be received in Rome? Paul didn't know. He'd never been to Rome when he wrote this. But James Stewart, the great Scottish preacher, uh, made a good point, uh, a good observation in this text. He said, there's no sense in declaring that you're not ashamed of something unless you've been tempted to feel ashamed of it. You know, Paul, I'm sure in his human weakness, was anxious about how that gospel message would be received in this very cosmopolitan major city of Rome. And yes, Paul was a well-educated Pharisee. He'd been educated in Jerusalem by Gamaliel, the great rabbi, but none of that mattered in Rome. That only mattered in the Judean province. To the Romans, he was just a tent maker, a little Jewish tent maker who had somehow made his way to Rome bearing a message about another Jewish man who was supposedly the son of the one true God who was sent to earth to die a perfect death on a cross and to rise again. How would that message be received? Remember how Paul felt when he got to Corinth. Corinth was another cosmopolitan kind of worldly city. Corinth was a, a port city. So all these merchants were constantly coming through Corinth. So it was a, a trading post uh, for the world travelers. Paul, when he got to Corinth, look at how he describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. If Corinth could make Paul see himself as weak and fearful and trembling, Rome was even more so about to do that. You know, Paul knew that this message that centered around the cross of Christ sounded ludicrous to most educated and sophisticated types. You know, the gospel is is foolishness to some, and it's a stumbling block to others, as he would write later in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's the subversive nature of the gospel. It seems like foolishness to so many in the world, but to us who have received the gospel, it is the very power of God. A few verses later in verse 23, he said, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Even religious people, even the Jews out of which the the prophesied Messiah came from, even they stumbled over the doctrine of the cross. The gospel just does this. It goes against the grain of our societal normative functions. It goes against the grain of respectable society. It always has. It always has challenged the assumptions that people have built their lives on, things like work hard and and do good and you'll save your life. You'll make something of yourself. You'll pull yourself up by your bootstraps. The gospel just dismantles all of those assumptions. People in our society, advertisers would tell us, look out for yourself, take care of number one, do what feels good, you deserve it. The gospel, again, flies in the face of that kind of dogma. We know where those paths ultimately lead to, don't we? The the gospel just completely shuts down all the, the basic assumptions and foundations that so many people in our culture are building their lives upon. John Stott, the famous Anglican theologian said, whenever the gospel is faithfully preached, it arouses opposition and often contempt and sometimes ridicule. So how did Paul and, and how do we overcome the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel? Now he gives us four reasons really in, in this text. We can see four ways that that help us to overcome being ashamed. There's four reasons why we can have confidence in the gospel. First, we can have confidence in the gospel because of its origin. We can have confidence in the gospel because of where it comes from. In Romans 1.1, Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. This isn't Paul's message that he invented. It's not some story that he came up with. It's the good news of God. God is the provenance from which this message comes. You know, a message that was handed down from Caesar, such as the one that called everyone to go to their hometown to be counted for uh, tax purposes. When a decree went out from Caesar, the entire Roman world paid attention, right? But a message from God goes forth in such a way that all creation pays attention because he is the Lord of all. He is the God over all creation. So this news, this good news was not written again by a journalist or by some tent maker. This message wasn't constructed by a media outlet. It comes from the mouth of God himself, the logos, the word of the Lord. How could Paul, how could we be ashamed of a message that originated with, that that is rooted in the heart of the high and holy God of all creation? This is good news indeed. The second reason that we can have confidence in the gospel, point number two here, is that we know the uh, operation of the gospel. We know how it works Verse 16 says the gospel is the power of God. How could we then be ashamed of real power that is effective, that actually changes things, that brings dead things to life, that gives real hope to the hopeless, that restores this fallen world back unto what it should be? You know, power was the one thing that Rome boasted about more than anything else. You know, Greece had their philosophers and all their ways of politics and that kind of thing, but Rome had brute strength. They had mighty legions with modern weapons that uh, marched without resistance across the known world. But all of that was no match for the gospel. The good news of Jesus would soon invade Rome in such a way that in just a few Short centuries, the whole empire would be destroyed forever and the message of Jesus would continue on. Paul knew that the gospel could take root in the humblest of circumstances. These believers in Rome weren't people in high society. They weren't in the Roman Senate. They were slaves. A lot of them were uh, very lowly types. But again, the subversive nature of the gospel was such that it worked from the bottom up. And turned everything on its head. Everyone who genuinely encountered the good news of Jesus Christ within Rome was confronted with the greatest power that the universe had ever seen. The word of God, by which everything that we see was spoken into existence, had now condescended to us in the flesh, God with us, Emmanuel. The third reason that we can be bold about uh, the gospel is the outcome of the gospel. We know the, the effectiveness of what the gospel does. That power is working. It's not only the power of God, but it's the power of God, what? Unto salvation, verse 16 says. It's the power of God to save. How do we know that? How do we know the gospel has the power to save? Well, ultimately, we know that by our own personal journey. We know it's true because we've experienced it in our own lives. Has God reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ? Has he forgiven our sins? Has he made us his children? Has he adopted us into his family? Has he put his spirit inside of us? Has he begun to transform us in in ways that we're growing in grace and discipleship? as we've been introduced into his new community, uh, the family of faith, then how could we possibly be ashamed of the gospel? If all those things are true, then how could we possibly be ashamed of this message that has transformed us from the inside out? And the word here in verse 16 for salvation that says that it's the power of God for salvation, that word for Salvation is is really the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Yeshua, which is the name that the angel told Mary that she was to give to her baby boy because he would save his people. Jesus is salvation. He is Yeshua, the, the deliverance. That word is such a rich word. It describes kind of being snatched from imminent doom. It it, it kind of implies that we were headed over a cliff and and we were rescued suddenly. Have you seen those videos? I I don't know where I came across these, but uh, of parents who just have this super ability to, at the last minute, save their child from certain doom. Uh, Show some of these here, Rachel. Rachel's on our slides today. You know, everything's fine, riding a bike. Inevitably, go right for the mailbox. Oh, look at that. Kid almost dropped his head on the back of that concrete, and Dad was right there. Again, the mailbox magnet just draws uh, in this little girl, and last minute, Dad catches him. Son's doing fine on this side, but that side, whoa, just snatched him there. Again, (laughs) just by the scruff of his neck there. I love this one. With her foot. Saves the kid from face planting with her foot. How do they do that? Drops the phone, saves the kid. Kid's laughing. Guy's on his power wheel, not looking. Almost dumps over, dad's right there. Launch off the air mattress, of course. Epic save by mom there with the catch. I mean, that kid's head this close to the floor, mom's hand, just the right time, incredible catch. We could watch a lot of these, but uh, you see the point. This is the idea that has in mind salvation in the sense that we were headed for stitches and the ER and much worse. You know, these kids in this video have no idea how close they came to going to the hospital. And instead they wind up laughing in the loving arms of their father or mother. That's the idea here of salvation, that we were about to face plant in a tragic way, and Jesus rescued us. The gospel snatched us from the jaws of imminent danger and destruction. That's what the word salvation implies. We need to remember remember that this rescue, that this Salvation is the great need of the world, that this world has been infected by sin, which is so much worse than any virus that this world has ever known. And the gospel brings the power to snatch people from the jaws of calamity and and from eternal destruction. The gospel has the power to save The fourth and final reason that that we have to not be ashamed of the gospel, but to have confidence in the gospel is the outreach of the gospel. What does it do? Who is it for? Look at the end of verse 16. It says that the gospel not only is the power of God, not only does it have the power to save, but it has the power to save for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for everyone who believes. The gospel is the great leveler. The, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We're all saved in the same way. Nothing that we've done on our own, nothing because of who we are, but only because of who God is and purely by his grace through faith alone. That's true for Jews. That's true for Greeks. That's true for Nashvilleians. That's true for Coloradans, that's true for Spaniards, no matter who we're talking about, preachers, priests, popes, uh, convicts, custodians, lawyers, doctors, all people are only saved by God's grace alone through faith in Christ alone. There's no distinction between humans when it comes to the necessary response to the gospel. It's to respond in faith, to say, I believe it, I trust it, I accept it, I'm gonna build my life on it, I'm gonna bet my life that this is what it's all about. The good news of salvation through Jesus came to the Jews first, to God's chosen people, and then out to the nations of the world, including our nation. The gospel is the power of God to save everyone who believes. No one is incapable of falling too far from God's reach. And that leads us to what really is the key verse to the entire book of Romans, maybe even the New Testament, uh, Romans 1, 17. For in it, the right in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. What does that mean? You know, righteousness is one of those kind of church words that get kind of thrown around. They get lost in religious jargon, but it's really a wonderful word. It's a beautiful antonym to the wrongness of our world and what we see in in society that uh, too often around us is broken. It's a gospel antidote To a sin-sick, suffering world that we have to walk through on a daily basis. God's righteousness is what we're talking about when we see the the gospel invading and overcoming our wrongness. The gospel is the means by which God's rightness comes and, and, and replaces the wrongness that sin has wreaked havoc on our world. The gospel is because God is right all the time. He's all good, all powerful, righteous in every way. The the gospel says that because he is right, that he came up with a way, he had to forge a way to destroy all the wrong that has infected our world. On the cross, the only son of God, the perfect lamb, bore the sin of the world in his own body, nailed to a tree. How could a holy God ever forgive sinners? How could he accept us while remaining right and holy? The answer is through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God is is proved to be both perfect and the perfecter. He's the one who perfects us through Jesus. Look at Romans 3, chapter 3, verse 23 to 26. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that means something that takes something bad and deflects it to something good, by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. There's that word again, his rightness, because in his divine forbearance, his long-suffering patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's what the gospel is all about. God remains holy and perfect. And yet through Jesus, he found a way to make sinners perfect as well. He found a way to put Jesus's righteousness in our place. Again, I love how John Stott says it the righteousness of God is God's just justification of the unjust. It's his righteous way of pronouncing the unrighteous righteous, in which he both demonstrates his righteousness and gives righteousness to us. That may be confusing, but it's the heart of the gospel. And this gospel, this good news, reveals the the rightness of God, his goodness, his perfection. And it shows us all of that about God. And then it offers us that perfection for ourselves by faith. Verse 17 says, for faith, from faith. It literally says out of faith into faith. What does that mean? That means that being right with God and right with the world and right with others begins and ends with faith. It's not a program that you sign up for. It's not a class that you enroll in. You don't get a diploma or a card in the mail to show that you're in the club. It's a miraculous gift that comes only by trusting, only by placing all of our hope and all of our love in Jesus Christ, by believing with all of our heart that only Jesus can do what he says he can do to save us from our brokenness. And that leads to our final point, a quotation from one of the minor prophets here in verse 17. This was written hundreds of years before Christ showed up at the first advent. Habakkuk chapter two, verse four says, the righteous shall live by faith. How then shall we live as we go forward from this advent season? Let's live by faith. How do we endure a season of fear and insecurity? and uncertainty by faith? How do we wait for the resolution of the gospel that promises that every tear will be wiped away? By faith. The Christian life was never meant to be lived with sure certainty, this kind of wooden rigidity that comes from following the Bible as a how-to Manual. It's not basic instructions before leaving earth. Or it's, church is not a place where you come to escape the, the reality of this world either. We're never meant to have all the answers. We're never meant to be able to prove the objective truth of God to a disbelieving world. All we're asking people to do is take a leap of faith, just like we've done. If they don't, they're taking a leap of doubt. We don't know either way, but I would ask you today to take that leap of faith, maybe for the first time. Maybe you've you've been taking a leap of doubt. You're saying, I don't believe this stuff. I don't think it's true. But now you realize the gospel is the most compelling message ever. It's the best news ever pronounced. And you're ready to make that leap of faith. You know, the Christian life must be lived one step at a time, all by God's grace and with constant faith, trusting that God's promises are true, that his ways are best, that they lead to flourishing, and that he is indeed working all things for our good and for his glory. I know that faith isn't easy. It takes a lot to to let down your guard and, and take that leap, that step into the abyss, not knowing if you're gonna fall or not. But here's the thing about faith in the gospel. It's not anything that we conjure up in and of ourselves. Faith in Jesus itself is a gift of God's grace. All we have to do is learn to die to ourselves. That's all, just die to ourselves and learn to live as a new creation, more and more each day, trusting in the promises of God. At times it's terrifying, and at times it's unfashionable, but I can speak from experience. I'm convinced with all my heart, it's the best way to live. It's the only way to live. The gospel, the, the good news of Jesus Christ must be received and lived out through faith in Christ, through a deep and abiding trust that it is actually good news. It's the best gift we've ever could receive. And it's the best way to live. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that you didn't abandon us here to figure out this sin problem for ourselves, but you invaded our sin sick world. You showed up and put on flesh, condescending to us in order to rescue us, to snatch us from the the jaws of certain doom. God, when we were about to go over the edge, you showed up at just the right time, offering us life, abundant life, both now and forever. Lord, help us to live into the gospel more fully. Help us to die to ourselves and be raised every day as a new creation recreated by the gospel that has transformed us into a new creation that is making us new from the inside out. And though our our bodies are aging and wasting away, we are being renewed on the inside day by day through the gospel. God, we thank you for this good news We know that our world is hurting right now. We all know people who are going through hard times. We pray that we would be able to hold out good news in the midst of a hard time. Not as as a means of, of downplaying the reality of the pain that people are experiencing right now, but as a way of invading it, as a way of inhabiting a space where you are making all things new. Knowing that this is all headed somewhere and it's headed somewhere good. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We pray this in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in today. Uh, Thanks for watching this this pre-recorded broadcast. We do encourage you to call the church office at 615-297-5303 if we can do anything for you. During this time, or go to our website, woodmontbaptist.com and, and fill out a connection card so we can get to know you and your family. Uh, if we can have any pray if we can pray with you uh, in any way, we're here to serve you. Will you now receive a word of benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you